my name is Daniel Lev Shkolnik, and this is Reenchantment, a podcast about finding wonder in a secular age. My faith lies in humanity, not the supernatural. If you believe that spirituality is fundamentally about cultivating the human spirit, then this podcast is for you. Dr. Chris Lethaby is a philosopher at the University of Adelaide, working on issues related to the therapeutic and transformative potential of psychedelic drugs. There's been a lot of talk about psychedelics in the past few years, and psychedelics are particularly relevant to this podcast because they offer a form of potent and transformational spiritual experience outside of any religious system. LSD, psilocybin, DMT, and other such molecules are avenues to transcendent experience. Some have traditions around them, some do not. But they all provide certain potential for curative aid or personal insight and transformation. Some people claim that these substances, much like mystical experiences in general, give us access to the world as it really is. And that world, they claim, is one of universal consciousness, reincarnation, gods, deities, aliens, and a host of other non-naturalistic phenomena. Chris Lethaby says that his money is still on naturalism, that the natural laws of science, strange as they are, are all that there is. So how should naturalists think about psychedelics? Are they showing us something that isn't real? Or are they, as some enthusiasts claim, showing us something more real than reality? If you've been enjoying Reenchantment and you want to make it better, I could use your help. I started Reenchantment this summer with the goal of creating a show that takes both naturalism and spirituality seriously. As I continue creating episodes for you to listen to, I also want to make sure that I'm listening to you as well. It's important I hear from you about what's working and what isn't, so I can make the show more valuable with each episode. Go to reenchantmentpod.com and a window will pop up asking you if you'd like to take the survey. It takes about five minutes to fill out and will help me decide what direction to take the show from here. I'd really appreciate hearing your feedback and your ideas about improving the show. And now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Chris Lethaby. Chris Lethaby, welcome to Reenchantment. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, you are doing something very, very interesting, something that I uh, have been thinking about my, myself for, for quite a while. You're trying to naturalize psychedelic spirituality. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and why you might want to be doing that? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, I'll start with psychedelic spirituality, the thing that I'm trying to naturalize and then say what it is to naturalize it and why one would want to do that. So psychedelic spirituality is a phrase that would strike a lot of ears very strangely, but basically it just refers to the fact that since psychedelic drugs, and obviously we're talking about a specific class of drugs, the serotonin 2A agonists, LSD, psilocybin, and so forth, since those drugs have come to sort of 
broader attention in Western society since around the 1950s, 1960s. Many people who have taken them have reported experiences for which they have no better word than spiritual. So people report experiences that they describe as profoundly meaningful, as kind of shedding light to them on not just their own lives, but their broader place in the universe and what it's all about. And this, um, as a lot of people have pointed out, is not that surprising if you're aware of the history of these compounds, which the history gets a bit obscure, but it's clear that some of them have long histories going back at least centuries of religious and spiritual and medicinal use in various cultures, especially in um, South and Central America. And so when these um, drugs sort of came to, as I say, came to widespread attention in Western society, this is one of the many striking phenomena that was noticed. So you had on the one hand, people pointing out the resemblance of the psychedelic experience to psychosis and referring to Mm. the drugs as psychotomimetic. But then on the other hand, you had people reporting mystical experiences, sort of transcendent Mm. religious raptures, and in some cases followed by lasting positive personality change or behavioural transformation. And so basically, as of course, there was a lot of research into the therapeutic potential of these substances back in the 50s and 60s, looking at whether they could have benefits for alcoholics or people with existential distress and anxiety and end of life. And as this research has been picked up again in the last few decades, it's been shown that, yes, psychedelics do seem to induce these experiences that people describe as mystical and that map onto the phenomenology, um, the experiential qualities of non-drug-induced mystical experiences. And it does mm-hmm. seem like, and this is when they're, they're given in, you know, with due care in controlled circumstances, it does seem like these experiences can have lasting positive psychological consequences. But for me as a philosopher, what is interesting and potentially troublesome is that a lot of people who report these spiritual or mystical experiences under psychedelics also talk in terms of what we would describe as non-naturalistic metaphysical claims. So they describe encountering a cosmic consciousness underlying the manifest world or a spirit world or a great beyond. Sometimes they might report a newfound conviction that we continue in some form after death. And so the concern that motivates a lot of my work was encapsulated really well by Michael Pollan in an article in The New Yorker where he said, is psychedelic therapy simply foisting a comforting delusion on the sick and dying? Is it giving people a hallucinatory experience that makes them adopt some comforting but implausible belief about the nature of reality? So that's the basic sort of setup is psychedelics seem to induce experiences that people describe as spiritual and find profoundly meaningful and sometimes transformative that have been shown to have lasting positive psychological and behavioural effects, but this often seems to go hand in hand with metaphysical claims that at least a lot of philosophers today would regard with a certain amount of caution. And one way of encapsulating those sorts of metaphysical claims is as non-naturalistic in the philosophical jargon as kind of reflecting a belief in something beyond the natural world or more than the natural world. And so my question then is, well, does psychedelic spirituality depend inextricably on that sort of non-naturalistic metaphysical belief or are the two actually separable? Yeah, yeah, well said. Yeah, and and I think that, I think in one of your papers in uh, an abstract, you say that it's this is important and, and has a lot of potential because I think there's there's an urgent need to respond to a kind of existential anxiety and and a general disenchantment that results from a naturalistic worldview. And 
so talk about, I guess, what what is the the, the state of mind that somebody that has a naturalistic worldview finds themselves in, and how can psychedelics alleviate that? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, obviously it varies, right? So a lot of people who adopt a naturalistic worldview who end up concluding that there is no immortal soul, there is no God, no afterlife, nothing beyond the natural world studied by the sciences. Some people seem on the face of it unperturbed by that. They don't seem troubled by it at all. But there is a sort of reaction that um, a lot of people have to adopting a worldview like that, which is basically, uh, and it's the sort of response that has spurred existentialist movements. It's the idea that this worldview in some sense robs us of the kinds of things, the sort of metaphysical supports that have always underpinned our sense that life is valuable and meaningful and worth living. And so adopting a naturalistic worldview leads a lot of people into this kind of response of disenchantment, um, existential anxiety, nihilism, the sense that in the face of the ultimate purposeless of everything and our kind of finitude and the, the fact that we're not part of any sort of master plan. We're just these immortal, accidentally evolved animals on this you know, one particular planet. We exist for a short while and then it's over. This worldview can evoke this sort of, yeah, as I say, highly disenchanted nihilistic response. And the thought is that, well, the parallel, I mean, you can find here and there um, anecdotes in the literature of people who have had exactly this sort of worldview and who have been helped to come to terms with it by psychedelics, but they're relatively few and far between. So the parallel, at least in my my reading, but the, the reason I drew, drew the parallel is because you've got this use of psychedelics in palliative care. So for people who specifically are suffering existential anxiety and distress in relation to their impending mortality, and the finding is that it can help them to come to terms with their illness and their death and to cope with it and it can decrease death anxiety and that sort of thing. And so the thought was that if it works in that particular population, the population mm -hmm. who is facing death because of a terminal illness and has existential anxiety for that reason, then theoretically that should generalise, um, assuming the, the you know human predicament, the predicament of being a mortal animal is essentially the same and um, assuming that the mechanisms underlying, the psychological mechanisms underlying existential anxiety are essentially the same. Mm. Now, what if somebody were, I mean, is there any insight or, or any research into what what exactly alleviates that anxiety? Because you could very, very easily say, oh, well, they take these uh, psychedelic substances and then they feel like, oh, well, I do have an immortal soul and, and yeah. do, life does go on. And, and so I'm not afraid of dying because I know these things now. I've experienced them. I felt them. Is, or is it, is, it, is it that kind of people go through the psychological process and maybe their worldview doesn't change, but they still come to a, a peace regarding their own mortality? Yeah, yeah. So this is the question. This is the uh, the hot button issue. And I think at present, it, we have to, to be scrupulous, we have to say it's not decided yet empirically, like the final answer is not in. If you look at first person reports and anecdotes, some people do say things like what you first described, they do describe, they say, now I have had a glimpse of the great beyond and I know that it's there and I know that we do continue in some form after death. And so the fact that there are reports of that kind is what obviously gives rise to this philosophical concern. My view, my tentative view at present is if you look at the whole scope of reports, the idea that that's the primary mechanism starts to lose its force, right? So across all these studies, these recent studies using psychedelics 
to treat not just anxiety, depression, existential distress in the terminally ill, but also other conditions like treatment-resistant depression, like substance use disorder. There seems to be one very consistent and strong predictor of positive outcomes of symptom reduction, increased well-being, and that sort of thing. And that is this construct of a mystical type experience, right? So mm-hmm. this is one of the things that, that kind of reinforces the idea that it is actually the psychedelic experience itself that's doing the work. It's not just some um, pharmacological process. It's Mm. It's not the dose of the drug, but it's the extent to which people satisfy these criteria derived from the psychology of religion for a so-called mystical type experience. And so these are criteria that were derived from the work of the philosopher Walter Stace, um, who was building on earlier work by William James. And you've got, depending on the exact list, you've got maybe seven to nine different um, criteria, things like a sense of unity is the foremost one, ineffability, paradoxicality, the noetic quality, the sense that real knowledge is being gained. Mm-hmm. So, so it's tempting to look at the findings and say, well, that's what does it, this mystical experience, this um, encounter, this seeming encounter with ultimate reality, that's what has the profound positive psychological effects. But something that I argue in particular in my book that's about to come out is that if you look at the qualitative reports, what you find is a more nuanced picture. And importantly, you find that it's not the case that everyone who ticks those psychometric boxes is actually having an experience of apparently encountering a cosmic consciousness or a great beyond or something like that. Mm. There are people who sort of satisfy the psychometric criteria for a mystical type experience, but they come away and they're not talking about having an immortal soul. They're not talking about meeting God. Instead, they're talking about a feeling of profound interconnectedness with everything, with the natural world. They might be talking about having insights about the unity and integrity and patterns of their own life and how they can see everything as this whole story with a sense of an arc and completion. They might be talking about having an acceptance of the sort of inseparability of the opposites in life. One um, quote that I remember from a terminal patient who had LSD was, dying is as usual or unusual as life itself. I just have to familiarise myself with the process. So this acceptance of death is kind of an inevitable culmination. And so what all this says to me is that there is some psychological process that's going on there, but it's not actually the kind of apparent what what so the philosopher Owen Flanagan has referred to some psychedelic experiences as metaphysical hallucinations, right? So which I think is a great phrase. Experiences as of the world metaphysically being a way that In fact, it is not. And so Mm -hmm. as a naturalist myself, that's what I would consider the experiences when people say that they encountered a cosmic consciousness or a a divinity or something like that. By my lights, those are metaphysical hallucinations, right? So hopefully Mm -hmm. without offending anyone, I'm just going to adopt that terminology. (laughs) So the central point for me is that if you look at all this evidence, it doesn't look like the metaphysical hallucination bit is the central psychological mechanism that is reducing people's anxiety and depression and restoring their sense of meaning and acceptance. It looks like there's mm-hmm. some other common factor and then you sometimes get the metaphysical hallucination bit coming along for the ride. So my claim is that the essence, the essential thing that is reconciling people to death and doing this good work that it's doing doesn't actually depend on those non-naturalistic metaphysical ideas. And one 
one really clear example is uh, Michael Pollan, actually. So Michael Pollan's recent book on psychedelics, really good for a number of reasons. I mean, it's just a terrific book, beautifully written, but he went in, so he had never, I think he'd maybe done psychedelics once or twice in his younger years, but in his 50s or 60s, he became interested, read all the scientific research, interviewed the researchers, interviewed the subjects, finally decided I need to know whereof I speak. So he went and had a few experiences. <laughs> um, and he went in an atheist and came out an atheist, and yet he right. had experiences that ticked all these boxes for a complete mystical type experience. And mm -hmm. as a, a fantastic writer and a very like eminent, um, accomplished journalist, he's very eloquent in his meditations on what was his experience and what did it mean to me. And it has to do with a, a perennial theme that you get, of course, in naturalistic accounts of spirituality, which is the transcendence of the ego. So he talks about viewing life from a perspective, from a kind of selfless state of consciousness in which his own sense of um, individuality was no longer the primary sort of regulating principle of consciousness. And this didn't mm -hmm. lead him to the belief that there is some egoless consciousness that permeates and um, kind of underlies the universe, but it allowed him to see all of these things from a different perspective and to see that his default egocentric perspective on all of these matters of life and death and so on was not the only one and was not sort of privileged in some way. Mm. Yeah, and earlier on uh, this podcast, I did an episode with uh, Professor Eric Steinhardt about atheistic mysticism. Uh, do you know Eric by any chance? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah, great guy. We've had a lot of uh, correspondence about these issues. Yeah, I think I think it was him that actually mentioned uh, you and your work. So so we have him to thank for 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 this connection. But yeah, we we've spoken about the fact that you can have mystical experiences even without psychedelics as a, as an atheist, as a naturalist. And so Michael Pollan, he went to you know find out what of he was speaking. Have you done the same? <laughs> That's the question. That is always the question. I'm going to I'm going to give you a, a big first here. I'm going to publicly acknowledge for the first time that yes, I have. Um, oh wow, what an honor! Boy, about this in the past. Um, I'm not going to go into detail. I think it's probably, you know, for anyone who's read my work and who is interested in it, it's probably no surprise. But I prefer not to talk about my own experiences. Maybe that will change later. But up until now. I mean, when I first started researching this field nearly, it's about eight years ago now, the climate was actually very different than what it is today, believe it or not. Even though the renaissance of research was well underway, it was still a relatively fringe thing. Not many people had heard of it. And in the last three to five years, it's public profile has expanded enormously. So back then, and I mean, I did my PhD on this stuff, which looked like a very risky move at the time. So mm. I thought that I've always had this idea that it's a good idea to sort of play it straight and be pretty coy about this sure. stuff. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, things have changed now. There's this big movement, actually, that the people who use psychedelics and psychedelic researchers should come out of the closet about their own experiences. And I see lots of other people doing it, and, and in general, nothing too terrible seems to happen. <laughs> I don't mind saying that, yes, I have, but in my work, I try and base it on what's out there, the scientific record, basically. So obviously, I've had my own experiences that have served as inspiration in some way, but I don't take my own experiences to constitute evidence for any of my conclusions. That evidence needs to come from um, either philosophical argumentation or scientific evidence or some combination of the two. 
Yeah, no, I think that's that's very wise. So you pointed out that it's really in the last three to five years that really the psychedelics have gone mainstream, so to speak. And this brings with it a lot of questions. How ought, how will and how ought psychedelics be integrated into, into you know, mainstream society? And I, I believe you wrote a, a, in one place about the kind of regular ritual psychedelic use that might be able to help prevent uh, or help alleviate mental health problems. Mm-hmm. What, what in, do you think does integrating these substances in a controlled and responsible way, what does that look like? Uh, and how might a kind of ritual psychedelic culture yeah so this is a huge question this is one of the really big questions and i don't have anything very specific or very insightful to say about it the philosopher thomas metzinger has this idea of bewusstseinskultur or consciousness culture which is getting a lot of discussion at the moment which is this idea that we need to develop a, a culture and an ethics around states of consciousness and we need to you know be well traveled in our, the range of our own phenomenal experience but also interpersonally culturally socially have this sort of set of ideas and norms and ethics around what is a good state of consciousness and what states of consciousness do we value and how can we cultivate them and so I think developing a sophisticated and enlightened Bewusstseinskultur is, with um, apologies for my pronunciation, is it's, it's not an answer, it's another way of st- restating the question but there is one study that I absolutely love and think is the single coolest scientific study on psychedelics ever done. And it was, yeah, yeah. So it was done at a Zen monastery in um, Switzerland a couple of years ago. And basically these experienced practitioners of Zen meditation went and did a five-day group silent retreat and they carried on their normal five-day meditation routine. And on day four, they got either psilocybin or placebo in a double-blind fashion and then continued their meditation routine. And they did very various fMRI scans, not during the retreat, but before and after and completed completed a battery of psychological measures and interesting, but in some ways unsurprising results were found. Those who had the psilocybin experience had greater rates of uh, mystical type experience while meditating. And that led to larger and longer lasting increases in mindfulness and indices of psychological well-being and all this kind of thing so the best answer i have is it looks something like that i mean you know i'm a big proponent of the idea that there are deep commonalities between buddhist meditation mindfulness meditation and the psychedelic experience this is something that a lot of people have claimed at least since the 60s and i think there's enough research now to show that that's not just kind of wishful thinking that is actually uh, there's good evidence now that there are psychological commonalities between the two states and there's a few studies showing that they can synergize in this kind of way that psychedelic experiences can actually elevate capacities for mindful awareness and attention and that having a meditation practice can affect the kind of experience you have under psychedelics can make it more likely for you to have a kind of positive and powerful experience and so not that We've done it perfectly in every way, far from it, but mindfulness meditation and Buddhist meditation more broadly is a kind of long-standing technique for accessing altered states of consciousness. I mean, that's not all it's for, and some Mm -hmm. Buddhists would kind of, you know, be very quick to correct me if I gave the impression that accessing altered states of consciousness was the point of the practice, but it's a, Mm -hmm. a technique, a spiritual technique for profoundly sort of transforming your own mind and in particular your sense of self that we've got a bit of a head start on integrating into our culture in a secular way. And so I think... 
apart from the fact that the two actually seem to synergize, somehow taking the lessons from how we've integrated mindfulness might be a direction in which to look. That's very kind of wishy-washy, I know. <laughs> no, but I, I like that example, and it's a concrete example or one vision of how this might work, finding ways in which to incorporate psychedelics into an existing religious practice, one that has discipline and regular practice as a part of it. Because I think the the, 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 the risk is that it's, I don't know, kind of, it, it gets let loose and it, it just kind of explodes like it did in uh, the, the 60s once before. And it, it, it has to... It has to be treated with respect, I think, because they are such potent and, and, and really powerful substances. They can, in some cases, I believe, trigger, trigger psychosis or, or mania, if that's something that's that runs in, in your family, or if you have yeah. a predisposition towards. And also, sometimes the experiences are not, you, you don't just see fractals and you're, you're, you grow feathers and fly up and on high. You sometimes confront really difficult painful and and in some cases terrifying experiences and i think there was someone somebody was i was watching a, a, a talk about this i, f I forget the uh, the intellectual thing but he was saying that how you know he thinks of these substances he was specifically talking about ayahuasca but in as well lsd and psilocybin they open the door but then we have to walk through it and the walking through it he put a lot of emphasis on the daily practice or, or a consistent regular practice before and, and especially after the fact to really figure out, okay, what is it that I felt? What is it that I experienced? And how do I, how do I use it in my daily life? How do I change as a result of this? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there is evidence now from clinical trials suggesting that when what you're interested in is the treatment of psychiatric conditions, you can take people, assuming they're suitably screened and prepared and so on, you can take them and give them one or two experiences, usually in the context of a structured psychotherapeutic intervention. So even there, some kind of structure and container and so on is absolutely crucial. You can sort of have one or two experiences and then get symptom reductions lasting for months or lasting even upwards of a year. But if you're talking about it as part of a spiritual practice for someone who is not, you know, primarily looking to treat a psychiatric condition, but is more interested in awakening or enlightenment or kind of developing some kind of undergoing some spiritual transformation, then yeah, absolutely. It's totally um, naive to think that you could do it in terms of one or two psychedelic experiences and, and that's it. It needs to be, as you say, in the context of some kind of structure and some kind of ongoing practice. A lot of people have said this in different ways over the mm -hmm. years. So Houston Smith has this line about turning flashes of illumination into abiding light. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, a lot of the evidence as well. So you're right. I have that line in one of my papers about maybe regular ritual use of psychedelics could help to prevent mental health problems. And one body of evidence for that is actually just some um, epidemiological studies showing that there seems to be a correlation between lifetime psychedelic use and lower incidence of various mental health problems. But I don't even know if that was out at the time that I was writing that paper. What I was thinking more about was all these studies on the mental health and well-being of members of ayahuasca churches and this kind of thing. And I, I'm oh, not interesting. 
So I'm not like really deeply into that literature, but I think they typically seem to have at least um, equivalent mental health, but in some cases, barely lower rates of substance use problems and this kind of thing. It's very hard to disentangle what's the ayahuasca factor and what's the being a member of a religious group factor, but um, sure, sure. that sort of thing. But anyway, the thought is that if that's good evidence for psychedelic use as a prophylactic against mental health problems, it's not. Well, it's not. It's not good evidence for psychedelic use as a prophylactic against mental health problems. It's at best good evidence for ritual, structured, uh, intentional, spiritual or religious psychedelic use as such a prophylactic. Right, right. And I guess, do you see... Can you envision this as, as part of not a necessarily a religious or spiritual structure, but as a psychological therapeutic structure? I mean, how do they uh, how do they do it in terms of the extant um, psychological research on, on these substances? How do they prepare people? How do they um, sit them down and, and guide them through it? Because I'm imagining they're not doing a, a religious ritual around them. <laughs> No, no, although there has been a bit of discussion, especially recently, about the presence of some religious elements in some of these clinical trials. So in some of the studies, there will be things like a Buddha statue in the room in which the person Mm. has the uh, experience or a chalice in which they're given their pill of psilocybin, these kinds of elements, which I think are very well-intentioned and kind of nods in the direction of an important insight that some kind of ritual element can be very useful and very powerful, but that sort of thing has started to Come in for a lot of scrutiny in recent times but in general it's totally secular so what they will do is usually once people have passed the screening and so on and they've been recruited into the study i think they'll usually have at least two or three sort of sober sessions prior to the first drug session with the people with the therapists who are going to be present with them during the drug action and they'll get to know each other they'll take a sort of autobiographical history and that kind of thing they'll also be briefed about the range of possible effects of the drug and given some literature to read which is one of the tricky things actually um, in psychedelic research is there are so many debates about what are the effects of the drugs and what are the effects of kind of cultural transmission and suggestibility and so ideally you want to be giving the drugs to um, people who haven't been primed with anything who have no idea about what to expect but ethically you can't really (laughs) you need to tell people the sorts of things they might experience if they ingest this substance but yeah my understanding is with a bit of i mean and sometimes it is in the context of a, a structured psychotherapeutic intervention as well so there won't just be kind of building rapport, getting to know you sessions, but there will actually be a series of psychotherapy sessions before and after the drug. So thinking now of one um, study of psilocybin for alcohol dependence, which I think used um, something called motivational enhancement therapy. And I think that was basically eight sessions of psychotherapy. And then the first psilocybin session came between sessions four and five of um, psychotherapy. And then there will be debriefing sessions after. I think usually people come back to the lab sort of the day following their drug session for a series of psychological measures and a debrief with the the supervising psychiatrists or psychologists. Gotcha. So, but similarly, there is, there is a structure around these experiences. Yeah, there's a lot of structure. Yeah. So people now talk about this kind of three-part model, preparation, experience, integration. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it's fascinating to think of of these substances in in combination with it, all, all sorts of kind of 
as you pointed out, therapy, but also for those who don't have any any necessarily addictions or trauma, uh, a way to enhance their lives, to make them more vivid, to improve uh, or speed up their development on a spiritual path, a kind of you know, personality change, insight into themselves or their patterns. And, and I guess this, you know, is where some of the interest I, I'd imagine for you is as, as a, a naturalist philosopher, figuring out, okay, where, what, what are these substances doing? And also how might they actually be applicable in a, in a, maybe in a, in a practical philosophical sense? In a sense, that is one of the things that um, interests me the most, but it's also sort of ended up a bit on the back burner. So, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think you're right. I am probably most profoundly interested in this question of how might psychedelics be used not for psychotherapeutic purposes, but for spiritual purposes as part of, as you say, um, some kind of philosophical practice or philosophy as a way of life. But I've ended up, so I have that one paper on naturalizing psychedelic spirituality, which deals with those kinds of issues. But then in the rest of my work, in some of it, I've focused a little bit on just the use of psychedelic evidence in the philosophy of mind. What can we um, learn theoretically from the study of these experiences? But then in the rest of it, I've been focusing largely on coming to understand the psychotherapeutic use, just because that is kind of, in some sense, it's easier, simpler, it's maybe a prelude or a prerequisite to answering the other questions, but it's also kind of the most urgent, most pressing current concern. There's a lot of talk about this, whether this is the right way to approach things or not. But earlier I said that we might be able to uh, take some lessons from mindfulness. And of course, mindfulness meditation became uh, widespread. It became secular and widespread initially through a medical route, through a medical model of John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness-based stress reduction. And that's the path that psychedelics seem to be following too, for better or worse. I have a strong opinion about whether it is better or worse, but it's the um, psychotherapeutic use that is turning heads that is getting people to take this stuff seriously again. And so I've ended up to date concentrating mainly on how do we understand that, but still with an eye on the same sorts of issues. Is it kind of transforming people? Is it giving them these psychological, psycho-spiritual existential transformations via some kind of delusive or hallucinatory mechanism? Or is there some mechanism there that's compatible with naturalism? But it's more being, as I say, I'm more being focused on looking at, well, in terms of the psychiatric use, the psychotherapeutic use, what should we think about this worry that it works by inducing false or implausible or non-naturalistic metaphysical beliefs? You know, is that a compelling objection to the use of psychedelics in psychiatry? So mm-hmm. um, maybe I'll sort of get back to the less therapeutic and broader, more spiritually focused stuff. I mean, I want to, I want to start looking in a bit more detail about all this stuff about not just how do they restore a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose, but specifically how do they decrease death anxiety? So I've made this argument in my book that the the core pattern, the core mechanism throughout all of these different conditions, how do psychedelics seem to um, reduce symptoms of depression, symptoms of anxiety, death anxiety, existential distress, substance use, I've argued that the core mechanism is changing the sense of self. And I think that's basically sound, but I would like to zero in more on how exactly it works in the specific case of death anxiety, and particularly in um, non-clinical populations, in people who just have kind of general existential distress or concerns around meaning and mortality. 
Yeah. And could you, could you give a, a brief summary about why ego dissolution and ego death might help alleviate all of these other problems? Yeah, yeah. So I should say, uh, to clarify, I'm not necessarily saying it's ego dissolution per se, because people have a lot of experiences under psychedelics that involve profound changes to the sense of self, but they won't describe them as ego dissolution in the sense that they don't say, I experienced my sense of self dissolving, I was merging with the environment. Um, And even when people do describe that sort of thing, I think that that part itself, the experience as of dissolving or merging is not necessarily the most psychologically potent thing. It's more about being able to change your sense of self, being able to, and there's two levels to this, right? One is seeing that the ordinary sense of self that from day to day feels like this totally solid, um, objectively real, unquestioned thing, coming to see that it is in fact a construction, that it is in fact a fragile, contingent construction of your brain. Um, It's a story Mm -hmm. in some sense that you tell yourself and therefore it's changeable. You can tell different stories. But then the other key point is coming to see the availability of all these other stories you could tell, all these other ways of modeling yourself relating to your experience and relating to your world. And so evidence that this is kind of the key thing comes from a few recent really interesting studies where people have applied measures of psychological insight. I mean, this is very preliminary and this is mostly like survey, online survey-based studies. It's not most of it today. There's a couple of things that are actually from clinical trials, but basically there's some reason to think that if you measure how the extent to which people have a mystical type experience while they're on the drug and the extent to which they have some kind of psychological insight, like I could see patterns in my own life, I discovered things about the causes of my psychological problems, I discovered solutions to my problems. It seems like the latter actually is a stronger predictor of good outcomes. So Mm. given that, and as I say, this is only in a few studies, this is preliminary, but to me it's highly suggestive, especially given that when you ask, well, what is the cardinal feature of the mystical type experience, all the experiences that satisfy these criteria, well, people always say unity. Number one is this sense of unity or interconnectedness. And of course, the flip side of that is changing the sense of self, weakening the boundaries of the self. So all of this to me suggests that it is changing the sense of self that is doing the work. And it's just on, on in abstract terms, it's kind of very simple. The idea is that the sense of self, the sense of being this stable, persistent entity that has goals and interests and various different properties just plays this totally ubiquitous structuring role in our experience that we're often oblivious to, right? It acts as a kind of filter. So what we notice and what we don't, what's salient to us, what we spend our time looking at and thinking about and emoting about is very uh, powerfully a function of this way in which we model ourselves, the kind of person we understand ourselves as being. And so if you dissolve that, then you can start having radically altered perspectives and not find yourself focusing on the same things. And some of these things sound kind of banal. They sound as simple as like shifting from a glass um, half empty to a glass half full mentality. But you see some of these people, people with terminal diagnoses who um, have psilocybin and they're talking about how in the days and weeks afterwards, they found themselves noticing these moments of natural beauty of seeing the light piercing the clouds and seeing Mm. dewdrops on a leaf and talking about how previously they would never notice these things because they were kind of 
imprisoned in this kind of sort of concrete, sort of heavy structure of depression and of rumination mm-hmm. on their, their predicament and their impending yeah. death. And so they were just locked down, shut off, closed off, and not actually awake to the joy and the beauty of being alive. And so that yeah. is, that's a case that sort of demonstrates how you can just have these straightforward attentional changes, just kind of liberating attention from the, the grip of these sort of hyper-salient concerns about myself and my fate and my fortune mm. can actually open me up to a wider perspective. Yeah, and, and that's that's beautiful. And it, it adds this sense of vividness to life. It adds this, this sense that, uh, I mean, talk about um, an antidote to disenchantment. This is, in a sense, a re-enchantment with the world, but not enchantment in a kind of supernatural sense, there's nothing nothing supernatural about seeing the light come through the clouds or or noticing the flowers break through the brick sidewalk. But there is a subjective change, an, an emotional. Emo, you're, you're put in an emotionally uh, more sensitive, more more attuned state, and and yeah, a sense it's, it's kind of banal when you say it, but but when you experience it, when you when you're in that uh, state, it. it it feels like life. Right. And I think this is something that Michael Pollan actually explicitly talks about. He talks about how all the insights from psychedelic experiences sound platitudinous when you try to communicate them verbally, but he makes this point that obviously he's not the first person to make that a, a platitude is kind of what remains when the life has been drained out of a, a profound insight. And one of the things <laughs> psychedelics can do is to put the life back in it to really make you um, deeply feel and experience these things. Um, Yeah. But but this is where, so you asked earlier, you know, one of the questions you posed at the start was where might some of the pushback come from? from Yeah, I was going to, I was going to ask. Yeah. So, so, right, right. Have people, have people, uh, I'd imagine that the main, main pushback would be from people who believe that oh no i understood like this metaphysical reality and and now you're saying that it's not real but maybe that's not the only place where does it come from where's the push- pushback? well so i mean in in this context right so we're talking about these sorts of attentional changes and insights and psychological shifts that psychedelics seem able to induce that lead to a sense of re-enchantment that lead to people feeling a kind of joy and wonder and appreciation for life and you were saying as i've argued that this is kind of metaphysically innocuous that this doesn't rely on coming to to believe anything about what reality is really like it's just opening yourself up to different aspects of reality that you weren't attending to and mm-hmm. in general i think that's probably true but one potential wrinkle comes in the sort of emotionally affective aspect of it and the fact that it does actually restore this sense of meaning right so you go from feeling as though everything is meaningless to feeling as though it is meaningful and to put the Mm. question philosophically does feeling that things are meaningful have truth conditions right does that have satisfaction Mm. conditions is that something that can be accurate or inaccurate and this is an issue that thomas metzinger has pressed me on before he's a philosopher who has written a lot about these issues and has a keen interest in them and he sort of raised the possibility that well what if psychedelics induce as he put it semantic hallucinations so feelings that things are meaningful when in fact they're not and in fact it's a real worry because it's quite obvious that psychedelics do do this right so just Mm -hmm. anecdotally 
people trip on LSD and while they're under the influence, they think that all kinds of things are profoundly important that we would mm. hesitate in our sober state to agree are. So there's a kind of proof of concept, if you like. Psychedelics really can. I mean, one of the things they seem to do in a general way is they mess with all these mechanisms that our minds have developed for kind of meta-representing these like higher order properties of, of our mental states, right? So we have these feelings about our own beliefs and so on. We have this sense that, oh, this is right, this feeling of rightness or feeling of knowing about other things we feel more mm -hmm. unsure. We think, well, yeah, but I'm a bit tentative about this. Well, those are higher order representations that the mind is creating, right? It's tagging some of our mental states and saying, yeah, this one's good, you can trust this one. This one's less good, you can't trust that. And it does uh, analogous things about different higher order properties, right? So trustworthiness or whatever is one sort of property of mental representations that the brain wants to meta-represent. Um, and another one is things like importance or relevance, right? It wants to look at all the different items of information it has and say, which ones um, do we need to care about? Which ones are kind of uh, relevant to our interests? And so clearly one of the generic effects that psychedelics have is they mess with these mechanisms that create, that the model these higher order properties of information. And okay. um, so that's why you can get this powerful sense of knowing that is kind of unmoored from any rational or evidential basis. And you can get this um, profound sense of importance and salience attaching to things that in the cold, harsh light of day don't seem very important at all. And so the worry is that what is going on when this sense of meaning is restored, This you have this sense that even though it's transient, it's ephemeral, it's beautiful, it's so precious and important, well, the worry is that that's actually just another hallucination in some sense. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess, but but there are, there are things that I'd say maybe maintain their importance in the sense of okay well you're not when you're when you're on you know lsd for example it's it's not like there everything feels important every moment every like uh, sign and symbol and, and and word but but afterwards you can feel a sense of well contentment with your life or a sense that your relationship with a certain loved one is is valuable and you appreciate it as valuable in a way that you couldn't before because of your depression or whatnot and these are things that are very they're very human they're 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 real in a human sense and they're how we create societies how we live with one another as social creatures and so in, in that sense that that's a that's a reality that can be reinforced and brought to light by psychedelics and maybe yeah like if if you, you can you can are you like that that's that's a reality you can't say that emotions aren't aren't real they're not physically real but something is happening yeah yeah definitely emotions are real the question is really whether they rep the, the question is one about the semantic content if you like of emotional states right when you feel a certain emotion towards something what is your mind actually representing the world as being like? So so here's an analogy, right? So mm. the error theory of morality, I don't know if you've come across this in your travels, the philosopher J.L. Mackey. No. Well, for, for those listeners, I actually, I haven't, and for those listeners who also haven't, uh, give a brief summary. <laughs> yeah, 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 I was, was going to anyway, but yeah. So it's just the idea that essentially, well, morality is it's exactly what it sounds like, that morality is some kind of myth or some kind of cognitive error. Not that when we go around actually participating in the moral life, we're doing something bad and we should stop, but that when we make moral judgments, when we think or say things like murder is wrong, torture is wrong, that actually expresses a false claim about reality, right? So um, mm. 
that is claiming that there is something out there in the fabric of the universe that is really not there. And so obviously a lot of people disagree with this view for a number of different reasons. But what's interesting about Mackey's view is the structure of it, right? It's got two parts. First off, there's a semantic thesis about what our moral judgments actually mean, right? The claim that when we say something like murder is wrong, we are really making a claim that is meant to, that is committed to the existence of some objective mind independent feature of the world. And then the second part of the view is the metaphysical claim, the claim that there are no such properties in the world. There are no properties like rightness and wrongness and good and bad and so on. And so this sort of idea will be familiar to anyone who's you know studied nihilism and disenchantment and this kind of thing. But the bit that's relevant is the, this uh, two-part structure of Mackey's view. First, before he can say we're getting it wrong when we moralise, we're factually misrepresenting reality, he first has to say what is the actual content of what we're claiming when we moralise, and he has to make this case that moral judgments purport to describe real, objective mind independent features of reality. If they didn't purport to do so, then you couldn't get anywhere saying they're erroneous if they weren't actually kind of claiming that any such thing existed in the first place. So going back to the psychedelic case, the question is, when we feel like something is important or meaningful, what is the content, if you like? What is the semantic content of that feeling? Are we just feeling like it's meaningful to us, in which case maybe fine, maybe there's no problem? Or are we feeling like it's important in some kind of mind-independent, objective, attitude-independent sense? Well, <laughs> if that's what we're feeling... And if you're suspicious about whether anything really is important in that kind of objective mind independent way, then that might be a wrinkle in the idea that psychedelics can re-enchant the world without compromising a sort of very austere kind of naturalism. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, and hmm. have you... Have you ever had, I guess this is, this is almost, almost feels like a, like a personal question. Have you ever had doubts or wonders about, well, is the austere naturalistic way of the world, is, is, that, is that the right one? Do we know that for certain? Sure, yeah, totally. No, we don't. I, I, I happen to think it's the likeliest. It's where my money is as a philosopher who's thought mm. a bit about the arguments and the issues. But no, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm definitely not 100%. I'm not 100% confident in any of my philosophical views, I don't think, but how confident am I that an austere naturalist worldview is true? Like, it fluctuates. Like, I don't think it's gone below 50% confident in a long time, but, like, maybe it hovers around 60 or 70%, depending on the day of the week and depending how much mystical literature I've been reading. You know, I, before I, like, in my younger years, before I studied philosophy, I was an idealist and I believed something very much like the perennialist sort of mystical picture of the world. And I, these days I, I would bet on naturalism over that, but not with a sort of total degree of certitude. And unlike some naturalists, I actually think the hard problem of consciousness is, is really serious. This is one of the things that sometimes gives me pause, um, trying to figure out how conscious experience could possibly emerge from a, a non-conscious, non-minded, purely physical or material substrate. It's just a really, really difficult issue. And there are a lot of different possibilities, right? One that I think that is really worth taking seriously is that what the view that's called new mysterianism, that we're just not smart enough to figure it out, that the mind, we're just one of our cognitive limits is the mind-body problem. We just, because of the way we're built, we're never going to be able to solve it. But it's one important thing that does give me pause sometimes about austere naturalism. 
Yeah. 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 Oh, time to time. I, I, I also, I also wonder, but yeah, that's, that's where my money is as well. And that's, that's why I do this podcast. Well, Chris, thank you so much for, for taking the time. And I think this is, this is very white hot work in a sense. It's, I think we're coming to a kind of fork in the road in terms of not a fork in the road. Hopefully it's the reverse. Hopefully it's a fork that is converging, but bringing together our religious and spiritual ideas, our seeming need for a sense of significance and and mythic symbolism and science and our understanding of uh, the world in a, in a naturalistic way. And I think right now this, this work with psychedelics seems to me at least a one way in which those those two worlds can kind of come closer together in a, synth- synth- a synthesis that makes sense and we'll see how it plays out but i've got high hopes for it me too i totally agree yeah well put i also like to ask do you have any words that you've come across that are either invented words or kind of words that maybe listeners may not have heard of to describe certain spiritual realities or philosophical realities that are useful, but are also divorced from a kind of religious baggage. Okay. Yeah. I'm so glad you asked. There is a word that I love and one day I swear I'm going to write something about it. It's not an invented word at all. It's very simple, humble, old fashioned word, appreciation. Um, (laughs) I love the word appreciation and the, the concept that it expresses. I find it fascinating because it seems to simultaneously have this cognitive and this affective use. It's ambiguous, right? To appreciate something is to grasp it fully um, and deeply, to really understand what it means. Like, oh, I didn't appreciate that fully until now. But it is also to have this positive affective response of valuing something or savoring something, often in light of its kind of transience or preciousness or something like that. And so it's a word that I think is actually really fertile for thinking about naturalistic spirituality and i i confess i haven't actually read it yet but i've been aware for years that meizumi roshi the zen teacher his autobiography was called appreciate your life and i really loved the idea that that was the title that he chose for his autobiography of a zen master because to me that that just that's naturalistic spirituality in three words yeah yeah and and I think that's a great distillation. What more could could we want coming to the end of our lives or at any moment in our lives? If we can say those words honestly and authentically, then we're doing pretty good. Right. (laughs) All right, Chris, have a good day. And hopefully I'll be uh, following your work and and keeping up with with what what you're putting out. Thanks very much, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Reenchantment. You can pre-order Chris's book, Philosophy of Psychedelics, by going to reenchantmentpod.com and clicking on the bookshop.org link on the front page. Reenchantment is an affiliate of Bookshop, and by buying through that link, part of the proceeds will go towards supporting Reenchantment, along with indie bookshops around the country. And please take the five-minute survey, also on the website, to let me know what you like about the show and how to make it better. Just go to reenchantmentpod.com and a page will pop up where you can take the survey. It really helps to know what you think. Again, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Reenchantment. Enchantment.